Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. This is Enid Cho. Coming up, auction action with Jonathan Stone, Chairman and International Head of Asian Art at Christie's. We'll also take a look at Asia's online retail landscape with Zach Coleman, Deputy Editor of the Nikkei Asian Review. And Wei Gu of the Wall Street Journal will share her latest observations about Chinese properties. The US stock market dismissed a worse than expected 1% decline in quarterly GDP as a temporary blip. Major indices hit new highs even after the first quarterly contraction in the economy since 2011. Economists largely blamed cold weather in the first quarter and low inventories rather than any downward trend in the recovery. Still, Treasury yield fell again. In a rising economy, yields usually go up. So why did the 10-year Treasury yield hit a new 11-month low of 2.4% yesterday? Rick Reader, co-head of America's fixed income at BlackRock, has this to say. So you have a dynamic today that's at play that is truly extraordinary, and I would argue truly historic, where where Draghi and the ECB are going to be incredibly aggressive going forward. It's driving in European bond spreads or, or European bonds. You have the Bank of Japan, as we talked as you talked about earlier. Bank of Japan is aggressive and potentially more aggressive going forward. As long as that's in place, you know, do I think Treasuries could drift higher in yield? I do, but the backdrop around keeping them in a range is profound. So- He also says on Bloomberg that while ordinary people are worried about inflation, it's not something that's bothering policymakers today. I think I think monetary policy officials around the world are more worried about deflation today than inflation. <clears throat> this is not to say that longer term you can't see an inflationary condition take place. But if you look at inflationary conditions in Europe, you look at what's happening, the slowdown in China, clearly Japan, uh, including what's happening near term in Japan in terms of inflationary conditions, the near term risk is that we continue to decelerate inflation wise. There's certainly more M&A activities which usually show that companies are confident. The latest bid is from Tyson Foods, which is offering to buy Hillshire brands in the US for $6.8 billion, trumping an earlier offer from Pilgrim's Pride. In other news, AS Watson's is planning to offload its 50% stake in a business that runs duty-free shops around the region. The ventures partner Nuance Group will buy it out by next month. This is coming after Hutchison Wampoa sold a 25% stake in Watson to Singapore to Marsec Holdings in March, prompting more speculation that Superman Lee wants to reduce his Hong Kong portfolio. U.S. authorities are seeking more than $10 billion U.S. dollars from BNP Paribas to settle investigations into alleged dealings with sanctioned countries, according to Bloomberg. And French economist Thomas Piketty is fighting back. He's issued a 4,400-word-long defense of his best-selling book on income inequality, income inequality rather, against the FT's allegations that he had relied on faulty data. Here in Asia, the Nikkei 225 index is up 27 points to 14,708. The Australian ASX is up 1 point to 5,500 and Seoul's Cosby is up almost 4 points to 2,015 points. Earlier, the S&P 500 added half a percentage point to close at 1,920. The Nasdaq Composite rose half a percent to 4,247 and the Dow was up 0.4% to 16,687. In Europe, Shares were little changed except for the FTSE, which rose 0.3% to 6,871. Gold slid further to a fresh three-month low yesterday, and it's down another dollar this morning 
at $1,255.30 a troy ounce. Let's say hello now to Wei Gu of the Wall Street Journal. Good morning, Wei. Um, I think Wei may have... Uh, Hi, good morning. Oh, she, she is back. Good, mo- good morning, Wei. Sorry, we lost you for a minute. Sorry, I just went to the control room <laughs> oh, I see. to check it out. Well, gl- glad you, you managed to get back to the mic. Um, I'm just about to ask you all about the, the, the article it's, uh, uh, that came out today on property markets in China. So we all know that the market is um, seeing quite a serious downturn. And there are a lot of worries about what the impact is on the broader market. Um, but um, you think that there are actually some really interesting dynamics at, plays, at play between developers, buyers and the government, right? Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of people are talking about a downturn in China's property market. In fact, if you look at prices, it's actually, um, well, not really falling yet. What has fallen is transaction volume. So that means that uh, people, buyers are less interested and they're waiting for prices to fall. And developers are holding on to their inventory because they believe the market will bounce back. But I thought a lot of developers have huge debts that are um, going to um, need to be rolled over soon and they simply can't hold out much longer, right? The debt position is better than in previous years because they had a great sale in 2013. Um, so they are sitting on good financial buffer. But usually cash flow deteriorate after six months to one year. So starting last September, this year they're likely to do slightly better. So we may give them a year. But uh, starting this September, we're likely to see discounts. And uh, well, the sales have indeed gone down a lot. I mean, they're down 9.9% in the first four months of the year from a year ago. And construction starts are down about 25%. So what are the buyers, what are the home buyers doing at the moment? Just waiting for prices to drop further, I imagine, just like in Hong Kong. Yes, there are three groups of different buyers. One is government and related people, government officials and related people. They account for about 30%. So these people are not really buying because of anti-corruption campaign and that's just going to attract attention to them if they are still hmm. buying properties at this time. And another 30% are investors who are kind of uh, trading and trade out uh, short-term investors. And they are gone as well because the sentiment towards properties have changed to the negative. And then the left um, are the people who have real demand and they are waiting. Another interesting development is investor the investment demand, which account for a big portion of the Chinese property market, have slowed because of more interest in going abroad and buying properties overseas. So in this year, in the first quarter, we have seen uh, 80% jump in terms of Chinese development investment in residential properties overseas. Are they mainly going to the States? They are going to a range of places and states are just one of them. So we see California popular, London, uh, in Europe, Germany has become a hot destination. Australia is always among the top three. Another place in Asia is Malaysia. So there is lots of developments going on in one place that's close to Singapore. It's interesting. It's interesting that's still happening with um, the weak renminbi. But um, it just shows how much cash these people are sitting on. 
Yeah, the weaker RMB is all relative. If you think of the overall appreciation, it has gone from um, eight. <clears throat> Uh, about exchange rate about eight in two thousand five to six point two now. Of course, that's a bit uh, lower, weakened from six、um, we seen a few months ago. But still, Chinese people feel they are getting better、uh, bang for their yuan when they are buying overseas. Now we've had some interesting comments from one of China's biggest developers, Vanka. The president Yu Liang、uh, on Monday dismissed. Talk of a collapsing market, saying we've gone from a golden era to a silver era, so things are not too bad. He says, just look at how first-time homebuyers are still coming into the market. And、um, but the vice chairman、um, on, in March had said that、um, he didn't see any possibility for a rise in home prices, especially in cities with large housing inventory, unless the government pushes out another few trillion RMB in stimulus. Are we expecting the government to further relax?、Um, Home buying restrictions. So far, the government has been saying that they are not going to come in and do another round of relaxation. In the past decade, every time when sales slow and developers' finance weakened, they have come in with well with various measures,、uh, mostly to release to.、Um, To make the liquidity con- condition better, so more money has led to higher prices. This time, developers are betting on that as well. And in recently, you have seen an increasing、um, number of comments by developers on how they are making a mistake. This will be huge strains on growth and uh, uh, on fiscal、uh, revenue of local governments. But so far, the government hasn't really been、um, relaxing its、uh, purchase restrictions. Restrictions, as well as the liquidity condition. I mean, the local governments are the ones that are really hurting、um, as transaction plummeted and land sales、uh, declined because they really need that money to pay off their debts, right? So that's right.、Um, land revenue actually accounts for sixty percent of the government off-budget financing, and that percentage has been increasing.、Um, Pretty rapidly over the years, and it's also a time that a local government needs to spend more to stimulate the economy.、Um, if、uh, they are not able to sell land, that means their ability to jumpstart the economy will be impacted. Though actually, price. I mean, recent、um, land transactions haven't been that bad in terms of the prices that governments be, have been able to get from the developers. Do you think that the developers are actually under pressure from Great Beijing to keep this market going in case of a total collapse in local government finance? That will well basically be a real nightmare for the whole country. I think it's kind of damn they do, damn they don't, because the government doesn't really want the prices to go up either, and they don't want the price, the market to crash.、Uh, so what they are hoping is for it to、um, maintain. I think the reason maybe developers are still sitting on good cash buffer, and in the past they have always expanded when when the market was kind of in distress. It's kind of who was braver, the most brave, got rewarded. Over time, so this time you will see a number of developers doing the same as well.
Great. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. That's Weigu, editor of China Wealth and Luxury at the Wall Street Journal. Let's say hello now to Jonathan Stone, Chairman and International Head of Asian Art at Christie's. Good morning, Jonathan. Good morning. Well, you've just wrapped up another week of adrenaline-charged spring auctions in Hong Kong. How were the results compared with last spring? Well, the results, I think, show a continued excitement in the art market. Um, what we saw in 2013 globally was the extreme, the, the growth of Asian buying uh, and greater China in particular. So that level of energy has really continued through to the sales last week. Um, in 2013, greater China buying accounted for almost a quarter of all our business globally at Christie's. Hmm. Um, so I think all the indicators are that there's a very sound and sustainable art market based here in Asia. Now, um, the overall sales reach three billion Hong Kong dollars, which is um, pretty pretty staggering. And um, considering the uh, tighter credit conditions in the mainland, it's about the same as um, what you achieved last year. But are mainland buyers still very much um, the main players in the Hong Kong market and and elsewhere? Is it true that they still account for about two thirds of auction sales in Hong Kong? I think in the last season. Whilst mainland buyers were really significant and will continue to be so, you did see a lot of participation from other regions in Asia. From here in Hong Kong, there was participation from Taiwan. Um, and one of the interesting things, one of the success stories of the last week was particularly participation from Southeast Asia. Mm. Our Southeast Asian art sales did very well. Um, and also there's increased participation from Korea. Uh, for example, the 20th century Korean artist Kim Wang-gi did extremely well in our evening sale. So I think it's great to have this kind of diversification and to see the real participation from all the regions of Asia um, and from the regions of Greater China too. Um, one thing we, we always look out for in, in auctions is the proportion of items that found buyers or the so-called sell-through rates. In the Chinese ceramics and works of art sales, um, Demand seemed to be rather lackluster, with only around 60% of lots sold in most sales. What, what happened there? Right, that was the average sold-through rate. I think in that particular area, what was very interesting was the development of the Song ceramic sale. We had a special sale dedicated to Song dynasty ceramics and works of art, um, and that was received extremely well. And that is another of the areas which has seen increased interest um, I think also another area that did well was a curated sale that we put together called Connoisseur's Eyes. Um, that had a much higher sold-through rate. I think in other areas that the appetite is not there if the works are not in absolutely perfect condition. So it's a very sophisticated and discerning market. Mm-mm. And um, as we've all um, observed over the past couple of years, mainland buyers are becoming much pickier um, as um, it's, easy, it's, it's become more difficult to, to get easy credit. Now, I spent a bit of time at the previews, and overall it's a grand display, as, as usual. And um, it's especially nice to see a section um, of um, European art that will be auctioned in London next month, as U- US especially, and, and also to some extent European buyers come back with, with their pedals. Do you think that prices in Western art will grow faster than Asian art, especially contemporary Chinese art, in the next few years? I think that the prices for Western art uh, will continue to be robust. Um, as you say, what we have been trying to do is to introduce a cross-fertilization between the East and the West so that there were highlights, as you say, from the 
forthcoming impressionist and contemporary sales in London, but also what we're doing is um, building up private sales because we feel that there's a real appetite for, for private sales where things don't go through an auction but are offered privately. Um, and that's why we had a great selection of works of art uh, for private sale, particularly impressionist and modern paintings. Um, we also had other highlights, such as a, a wonderful, very pure Stradivari violin, uh, which will be offered by uh, a sealed bid process in New York in June. Um, and the other area, uh, relevant particularly to here, I think, but with real international following, is the development of contemporary Chinese ink painting. Um, and we had a selling exhibition again, of contemporary Chinese ink painting, which will be leading to an auction we'll be having in the autumn in Hong Kong. I mean, like you say, art collectors in general and, and their dealers are a very international lot, aren't they? They just travel from one auction Extre room to extremely another. Extremely international. But, um, so why, what would it be the factors um, that a seller would consider um, when he or she has to decide whether to um, sell his or her collection in Hong Kong or London or New York? I'm asking this because um, a guest on the show last week, Andrew Look, um, mm. has, of course, through Christie's, had a, a very successful sale of his Qing Dao Guangwares in London um, earlier this month. And I'm just wondering why he didn't choose to um, sell them in Hong Kong. I'm afraid we ran out of time in, the, in that show, so I didn't get to ask him. It's something we work very closely to, to, with the uh, consigners on. I mean, clearly Hong Kong remains the flagship, particularly for the world of Chinese ceramics and for the world of Chinese paintings and contemporary art. Um, in the case of Andrew Look, I think there was it was a very, very nicely, very well put together collection. Um, a lot of the property I think he'd actually acquired in London at the auction houses uh, and the major dealers in London. So it had a nice London provenance as well. And I think that that sometimes speaks to a decision about where you offer the property. Right. Um, that if it has this historic provenance associated particularly with one city, it's nice to offer it in that city because it provides a historic link. Um, in a sense, that collection, I think you could have offered in Hong Kong, but the decision was made to offer it in London. It was a very nice group for London, and I think it it, it, it shone in London um, and was in no sense uh, overshadowed by any would, greater imperial, earlier imperial wares. Were the buyers mainly Asian, though? The buyers indeed were mainly Asian, yes. Now, the rise of contemporary Chinese art has been amazing. Zhang uh, Fanzi's um, uh, The Last Supper sold at Sotheby's last year for a record, 23.3 million US dollars. That's a record for work by an Asian uh, living artist. But one of his mask series was sold for less than pre-sale estimates this time um, in Hong Kong. That's a bit of a surprise, isn't it? I think what people sometimes forget about the art market is that it's not an exact science, um, that you need to look at each work on its individual basis. I mean, every artist has greater works and sometimes not so great works. And you need to take that into consideration when you're providing an estimate. Um, what is particularly special about that work? Uh, what is the condition of that work, for example? So I think you're not really comparing apples with apples because sure. no, no two works of art for any artist are ever going to be exactly the same or exactly comparable. You really need to decide on a 
case by case basis. I mean, and, and you, as you were saying with the ceramics, you know, sometimes w- w- a, a song bowl or a, a, a Ming vase isn't as perfect as the next piece. Um, but in general, is it becoming harder to get top top quality um, consignments either in painting or in works of art? I think you what you do see is that there is a slight diminishing of of supply in the sense that there's been such an appetite for art in the last uh, decade or so um, that a lot of great works of art, of course, have gone into museums. And one of the other great stories is, is the development of the museums in China, for example. Mm. So, uh, obviously, as works of art do go into museums and institutions, um, they're less, they, they, they won't be back on the market. But what it does mean, of course, is that the enthusiasm and the hunger for great works when they do appear uh, is even greater than before. Now, there's the Sir Alex Ferguson, uh, Ferguson wine sale got a lot of media attention, and it did quite well with uh, 89% of lots sold. Were there really any football fans there who you haven't seen in a wine sale before? I, just, I think there were, there were quite a lot of football fans there, really? actually, yes. Did they buy them? <laughs> yes, I think they. I think they did. I mean, Sir Alex is such a such an iconic name, um, and I think it appeals not just to football fans, but um, even to those of us who are not always uh, following every stage of the uh, Premier League. <laughs> Great, thank you so much for coming to the studio today. That's thank you. Jonathan Stone, Chairman and International Head of Asian Art at Christie's. Okay, so the Nikkei 225 is now up 0.3% to 14,725. The Australian ASX is now down 5 points to 5,494 points. And the Seoul Cosby is up 2.5 points to 2,014 points. Let's um, go now to Zach Coleman, Deputy Editor of the Nikkei Asian Review, for a look at the latest trends in Asian online retail. Good morning, Zach. Hi, good morning, Enid. Let's start with China. Um, online retail sales reached 1.8 trillion renminbi last year. It's now the biggest online retail market in the world, having overtaken the US. So apart from rising wealth, what do you think are the biggest factors behind the uh, amazing success of websites such as JD.com and Alibaba's Taobao? Well, one interesting factor in China compared with, say, the US or other developed markets is that in China you really don't have uh, traditional physical retailers that have nationwide reach. Um, you, you know, you have different ones that are strong in different regions or, uh, you know, have, have different concentrations of different pro- products. But mm-hmm. nobody that's really built the kind of nationwide networks just because of the size of China and the number of large cities that you've got. Um, so in a way, that's what, what the part of the appeal of the online retail is that people in cities that we may, may say are smaller cities but maybe still have a million people but that sure. uh, don't yet have the, you know, Gomei or Suning or some, that some of the retailers haven't reached yet. Uh, and local so, and the local um, uh, online retailers have managed to set up a pretty sophisticated delivery network, haven't they? Right, exactly. So the people in these cities, they don't have the same choice on the ground of, of products. And that's the appeal of online retail is that they can get, you know, the full range of products that the people in Beijing or Shanghai, you know, potentially are buying. And what are people buying generally? Um, because remember a few years ago, a lot of uh, uh, Western luxury 
brands started talking about, ooh, let's try and sell directly online to all these wealthy people in China. Um, it's a way to um, uh, battle the counterfeits and so on. Um, or, but are people buying luxury products or just ordinary daily groceries and clothes in general? I think it's both. Uh, I mean, a key thing is that that people don't want to pay, you know, they want to feel like they're getting a, a special deal online. And that that's something that's, you know, different, uh, different Western and, and Asian companies have encountered that if, if you're just sort of selling it as, as literally a parallel channel where it's the same as, as what you'd get on the street, then, hmm. you know, that doesn't have as much appeal um, that in China, especially, I mean, it's, of course, it's true anywhere, but in China, especially that you get a lot more lift if, if you can give people a sense of discount. So, of course, for some luxury brands, you know, they don't, to protect their brand, they don't want to mark things down much online. So that's a that's a dilemma that faces a lot of the the, the uh, luxury brands. Uh, I think Weigu actually had a story last week or the week before about the rise of uh, female sort of product categories in China that that are purchased more by by women, such as cosmetics and things, and how those that's really dri- been driving a lot of the recent rise in online retail in China. Is there anything regulation-wise that's stopping foreign players from entering China, or is it just the dominance, the sheer power of the um, local pay- players? Well, compared with India, no, it's it's a much more open market. Uh, it's just been sort of unlucky. I mean, uh, Amazon and eBay you know, have been in China for some time, and eBay at one point bought the, the company was, say, 10 years ago, the market leader called EachNet. Um, but EachNet was outmaneuvered. E- e- EachNet under under eBay was outmaneuvered by Alibaba. Alibaba's one, one key thing was it just undercut it by offering free <laughs> listings. And, uh, you know, th- that was the, the main key part of the money model for eBay was to get money from vendors who were to, to pay to put their products. So, uh in so a lot of ways, how, they were closer to the market and, and just beat eBay flat out. So, I mean, how, how, how is Alibaba and other players making money then if they're not uh, charging um, um, buyers and sellers as much as um, other competitors do? Right. Well, I mean, in some ways, it's, it's like what happens in, in other industries that the you know, Chinese companies have made uh, – have gotten market share by a willingness to, to operate on thinner margins and, and make up with scale. Um, I mean, for for Alibaba, they've they've also sort of taken a page out of eBay of of having their own payments business, as you know, the the Alipay, uh, which like uh, which as as eBay's has with PayPal, it gives them a key way to make money because the, you know it's sort of a captive system that you're using to to pay for all the products. Now, um, um, the Indian online retail market, as you um, alluded to earlier, has lagged far behind, and that's partly to do with um, uh, restriction on foreign investment, isn't it? Yes, as well as you know some of the logistics that you were talking about about China. But so in India, there's there's formally an absolute bar on invest on foreign in- investment, even not even you know control, just foreign investment in in online retail, uh, but. In recent years, companies have been sort of pushing the edges of the meaning of that so that uh, eBay is now operating in India because India, they've, they've interpreted the rules to say that if, even though online retail is, not, is, is a forbidden area, if you are only a, an auction site, as, as you know, eBay's traditional model is, then that's okay. Is that, or that in some way that you're matching 
in the way that Alibaba mm-hmm, does, mm-hmm. if you're just matching uh, buyers and sellers, but you are not actually you're not the, the actual retailer, right? If it's not your inventory that you're selling, mm-hmm. but if you take the order, you deliver it, you can do everything else. But it's it seems and also uh, there's I suppose there's a lot of expectation that the new government, the new Modi government, is going to um, make life a lot easier for foreign um, businesses in all sectors. Well, it's a big question with retail. I mean, and some other sectors as well, like banking, because uh, when the BJP was in the opposition, they were very vehement in support of the of the you know the corner shops, the, the small retailers against this attempts by Congress to allow uh, foreign retailers to 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 come to India. Um, so they, they're attracted by that rhetoric. I mean, Modi wasn't so much a part of that, so he's he's you know dropped some hints that he might. Uh, change the BJP's line, but you know he'll have to have to work we'll with the other people in his party. Um, well, but um, ahead of that deal, um, we we just saw last week a merger of the two biggest players in the in the Indian market, who are both local players, which are uh, Flipkart and Mintra. Uh, part of that was is driven because they thought there might be the foreign players might come in more, and so they want to you know want to be want stronger. To Great, um, thank you very much for joining me today, Zach. I'm afraid we've run out of time. Uh, that's Zach Coleman, Deputy Editor of the Nikkei Asian Review. The weather forecast, uh, cloudy periods with isolated showers in the morning, but mainly fine and very hot during the day with a maximum temperature of around 33 degrees. It will be mainly fine and very hot over the weekend and the Dragon Boat Festival on Monday. Renita Mahotra Hora will be in the hot seat next week.